The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right, we're on page 202. We're looking at uh, chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 27 and 28. We're in this section of the antitheses where Yeshua is saying, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And as we, uh, just by way of a brief reminder, when we started uh, studying these uh, antitheses, we saw that uh, you have heard it said, or it is said, or you have heard, was a common way in the rabbinic literature to introduce a given interpretation or a given perspective, point of view of a sage, perhaps one that was uh, well known, or maybe even an interpretation that was uh, generally received. And then you would have the rabbi go on to say, this is my suggestion, this is my addition or or my interpretation. So uh, it isn't that Yeshua is is speaking, uh, uh, discounting the Torah as though you have heard the Torah say this, but then I'm telling you different. What he's doing is expressing to us how it is that our righteousness would exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Because that was the context just previous to his uh, giving us these six antitheses. So how is it that our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? One could hardly imagine that one could exceed their zeal for doing things the right way. But the question is, what was their motivation? And what What things were left undone that were unseen? And what Yeshua is constantly pointing us to is the motivation of the heart. And the motivation of the heart which does not neglect doing the commandments, but keeps in mind the purpose for doing them and has uh, some uh, way of of considering how the commandments uh, are to be lived out when they conflict as they inevitably will in our fallen world. And for Yeshua, the guiding factor was love for your neighbor. And that seems to rule the the halakha when there's conflict. Apparently, at least for some of his contemporaries, and this would be true of human nature, I think, that we tend to do those commandments which everyone else sees us doing. And we tend to put more attention upon those than we do upon the commandments that we are to do when nobody knows we're doing them. And so he, he made accusation against the Pharisees that they polish the outside of the cup, but they fail to clean the inside. That there are things which are part of life that uh, no one else sees, but they're there. And so he is going to the heart of the matter. Not that he's putting the heart uh, over against the doing, but he's asking the heart to be the motivation for the doing and to have the heart circumcised as well as the flesh circumcised. He's asking for both. And... That seems to me to help us understand these antitheses. So, in verse 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does this mean? Does it mean that if you have any lustful thought, it's as though you, it's the same as committing adultery? Well, we know, practically speaking, it is not. Uh, Committing adultery in the physical sense, in the actual physical sense, sometimes produces children, sometimes produces disease, uh, sometimes uh, does a lot of other things, okay, in a very, in a very tangible way, all right? Uh, And I'm not trying to say, as you'll see in in the notes, I'm not trying to diminish at all the severity of what Yeshua is saying here. But we should not think that he is, is equating one for one the actual committing of a physical sexual act with one's uh, thoughts. You cannot conceive babies with your thoughts. Okay, That, that is never going to happen. Uh, there, there is a difference. So the question is not how are they different. The question is how are they the same. And that's, that's what we're asking here as we try to understand where he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So... We're moving from the sin of anger. Remember just previously he said if you're mad at, you know, if you say uh, 
raka, or if you say you're fool, uh, you fool, so forth and so on. We're moving from the sin of anger, which is the fountain from which murder flows. Yeshua now moves to the inward sin of lust, which has the potential of growing into the sin of adultery. He begins with a shortened form, you have heard it said, which was fully given in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told. As before, this opening introduces a well-known teaching, the seventh of the ten words, Lo Tinoth, you shall not commit adultery. The idea that Yeshua introduces something here otherwise not taught in the Torah is wrong. In the ten words themselves, the final commandment, you shall not covet, includes you shall not covet your neighbor's wife as well as your neighbor's maidservant. Coveting the wife or maidservant of another man, which surely includes lust, is therefore prohibited by the commandment. So Yeshua is not bringing us anything new. In fact, what he's doing is he's linking the the, uh, the seventh commandment with the tenth commandment. He's showing that the tenth commandment, which probably encompasses them all, coveting is kind of the heart of all sin because it is selfishness. And self-centeredness is the fountain of, of sin, basically, right? I mean, when when Satan came to Adam and Chava and said, uh, "What you've been schnookered by by this God that you know," what he doesn't want you to know is you could be equal with him. You could have it all. It could all be about you. And so, what did Chava? She said she saw the fruit and it was good to the eyes. It was good to the touch. It was it was all of those things that were good for her, or it seemed that way. So self-centeredness is, is, is the general category into which all sin falls. So he is linking the seventh and the tenth commandment. So it's nothing new. So what is his antithesis? Well, let's keep going. Nor is Yeshua the first to equate the lust of the heart with the actual act of immorality. In the Testament of Issachar, which is dated to the first century before the Common Era, we read, I am 122 years old and I am not aware of having committed a sin unto death. I have not had intercourse with any woman other than my wife, nor was I promiscuous by lustful look. So here we have in a, in a Jewish uh, context, uh, Jewish literature, the linking together of the actual act of adultery with the thought process. The rabbinic literature contains a very similar teaching, and though later than Yeshua's day may give evidence of an early teaching of at least some of the sages. In Yoma, uh, Babylonian Talmud Yoma 29, we read, Unchaste imagination is more injurious than the sin itself. And on the phrase com shall commit in Numbers 5-6, we read in Midrash Rabbah Numbers, the future indicates that they have only intended to commit a sin, but have not yet done so. This is to teach you that the moment a man contemplates sin, it is as though he has committed a trespass against the omnipresent one. So the rabbis were also saying the same thing, at least some of them were. You ought to be as careful about what you think as what you do, because what you do comes from what you think. How then are we to understand the apparent antithesis given by Yeshua if, in fact, there is every indication that his emphasis upon the sin of lust was a well-known teaching in his day? How could he have said, you have heard it, but I say to you? The answer may be found in an exegetical debate between Shammai and Hillel referenced in the Talmud. In Babylonian uh, Talmud Kiddushin 43a, the debate is over an exegetical question. If two verses teach the same thing, can a general halakhic rule be made from them? Now, this gets a little involved, but follow me. You may, this, you may get interested in this. Hillel said no, and Shammai said yes. Hillel then points to the use of the demonstrative that, which is in the Hebrew hahu, in Leviticus 17.4. Blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Hillel goes on to reason. Now, what is the context of Leviticus 17? It's basically saying if you sacrifice a sacrifice out in the fields, that's, that's, a, that's a, an offense punishable by death. You're to bring your sacrifices to the tabernacle, to the place where God has, placed, has set his name, or the place that God chooses. So, that's Leviticus 17.4. Blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Hello goes on to reason that if someone had sent his agent into the field to slaughter a sacrifice... The agent, not the sender, is liable since the text says that man. You understand the argument? Who's liable? The one who actually commits the offense? Or what if somebody said, hey, to a servant, go take this lamb and go out in the field and sacrifice it to the Lord. And the servant goes out in the field and does that. Who's liable? The man who sent him 
or the servant. Hillel says, the text says, that man. Shammai, of course, interprets the verse to mean whoever slaughters a sacrifice outside of the tabernacle is liable and appeals to the sin of David in having Uriah killed as proof. He says, okay, now, uh, Hillel, if your argument is right, David didn't actually kill Uriah, did he? Right? I mean, he didn't do it with his own hands. He told the commander to put him up front and, and where he would be unprotected and fall back. And so, actually, who killed him? The enemy killed him. But, what does it say? Now, when it was taught, if he says to his agent, go forth and slay a soul, the latter is liable and the sender is exempt. Shammai the elder said on the authority of Haggai the prophet, his sender is liable, for it is said, you, that is David, have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. You, David, have slain him with the enemy's sword. What is Shammai the elder's reason? He holds that the two verses with the same purpose throw light on others, and he rejects the exegesis of Hahu, that is, that, as opposed to just he. Alternatively, he accepts that exegesis, and what is meant by liable? He is liable by the laws of heaven. Hence, it follows that the first Tana holds him exempt even by the law of heaven, but they differ in respect to a greater or lesser penalty. Let me see if I can untangle this for you. The point that Shammai is making is that David was liable for Uriah's death, even though Uriah was killed by the swords of Ammon. And he does so on the basis of the prophet Nathan's own words, who charged David with murder. Thus, for Shammai, intention to kill incurs liability, even if someone else does the killing, but it does so by the laws of heaven, since intentionality cannot very often be proven in an earthly court. Right? In other words, how do you think the gangsters in our country get off so, so often? Well, because nobody, because nobody is going to testify against them. Because nobody is, you know, they make deals with one person. Who else knows? Right? So, there's no witnesses that he said, yeah, go knock this guy off. Most of the crime bosses in our, in our country have been uh, charged on what? Tax evasion. Not on the multiple murders that they've ordered. And that's because intentionality is very difficult to prove in court. You have to have multiple witnesses that say, I heard him tell this person, go do thus and such. But not so with the court of heaven. The court of heaven hears it all. But then the question is asked how Hillel could have answered such an argument since to oppose Shammai would mean that even the court of heaven does not hold intentionality liable. The answer is that Hillel considered the sender liable but to a lesser penalty. It may be possible then, since the debates of Hillel and Shammai are early, late 1st century BCE, that a similar legal argument was extant in Yeshua's day. Perhaps the prevailing legal standard was that only the person himself who actually committed the crime was liable, even if he did so at the urging or request of another. In other words, intentionality was not considered of any significant importance in the courts of Yeshua's day. Yeshua is clearly opposed to such an idea. For the courts of heaven are fully aware of one's intentions, and such intentions inevitably lead to sinful actions. It may be if our assessment of the Shammai-Hillel debate is on track. This is another in instance where Yeshua uh, sides with Shammai against Hillel, as he appears to do later in the divorce pericope. I'm, I'm talking as though you all are familiar with Hillel and Shammai. I apologize. But are you all familiar with Hillel and Shammai? Um, Hillel and Shammai were the last of the Zugot, the last of the pairs who ruled the Sanhedrin. After Hillel and Shammai, then there was a single ruler called the Nasi. Usually they would have a pair of leaders lead the Sanhedrin who themselves oftentimes were in conflict over their halakhic rulings. This was so that the Sanhedrin could not be, shall we say, bullied one way or the other by a single leader. Well, this last pair was the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel. Or we could say the school, if you wanted, the academy of Shammai and the academy of Hillel. Shammai was almost always very conservative and very prone to a literal interpretation of the text. Hillel was very liberal and given to a lot of uh, midrash and a lot of uh, expansion of the text. Now, if without even knowing anything about rabbinic history, which one do you think was most popular with just the general people? Hillel. Yeah, Hillel. Right, Hillel. Exactly. Get what you want. Uh, you know, the rules are, are, are less stringent. Uh, you know, liberalism always appeals to the masses because the masses think they're going to get more from a liberal than they would from a conservative. So, 
The same thing was true in Yeshua's day. Most of the people, uh, most of the halakha that, that is established in the Mishnah uh, is from Hillel, not Shammai. More often than not, the rulings follow Hillel. Occasionally they follow Shammai. And, usually, and it's interesting because where would you put Yeshua in that, in that whole cross-section? Would you say that he was more stringent with regard to the laws of his day or more relaxed? No, he was more relaxed. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, where the, where the, where the laws would have been, say, no, take that lady out and stone her. She's an adulterer. What did, what did he say? Uh, wait, wait a minute. Let's make sure we have real evidence here. In other words, you know, he tells the man, pick up your bed and walk. And he had to know that on the Shabbat that would have been viewed as something that was... But th- that's his whole point, right? That the, that the laws had become so cumbersome, the man-made laws, not God's law, it was never intended to be that way, but the man-made laws were so cumbersome that it was causing the people to falter under it. And he uses the analogy of uh, a load that's on somebody's shoulders that the rabbis have piled on there and they won't even give a, a finger to help them carry that weight, that burden, that yoke. So... We're not surprised that often he sides with Hillel. But in a number of important cases, he sides with Shammai, and I think this is one of them. But he, he, seems to, he, he seems to be engaging in the debates that are going on between Shammai and Hillel. And when the Pharisees come, they're asking him. They want him to, to reveal. Who, are you with Shammai or are you with Hillel? They're asking the questions with that, uh, with that in mind. All right. It says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, the word for lust here is epithumeo, uh, which is the same Greek word used in the Septuagint of Exodus 19.17, which is translated to covet. It, it means to, to want. It can have a good sense. You, you can covet the love of God or you could covet something wrongfully, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be evil. You can have a great desire for something good. And that desire is a good desire. The, the same desire you can have for something evil. And of course, that is, that's, that's the point that uh, we're talking about here. As noted earlier, the, this combines the seventh and the tenth commandments, even as Yeshua does here. The Greek construction, which is a preposition pros plus the infinitive, represents result and implies that the sin lies not in the entrance of a thought, but in letting it incite passion. It is the intention to allow the initial thought to grow into lustful passion that involves the sin. Temptation alone is not a transgression. But if temptation is not immediately rejected, it quickly becomes lust. You know, I I, I know that uh, we all of us, uh, and hopefully train ourselves, especially men. uh, Now, I've been told recently that this is changing in our society, but, you know, what do I know? But I know for certain that men are, uh, uh, what we see attracts our attention more so than than women uh we're very uh sight oriented when uh when you're sitting in the waiting r- room at the doctor's office and some gal comes in with the, you know with a short dress and and uh, so forth and so on uh, and she walks by and you and you look at her that's not a sin the fact that you are that your attention is drawn to that is not a sin what is a sin is what you do next if you dwell upon that if you think about that if you if you consider that in a sinful way, that's where that temptation has become a sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. Yeshua himself was tempted in every point, but without sin, right? It's not a sin to be tempted, but it is a sin to dwell upon it. And, you know, it is important for us to, as particularly as men, I can, you know, I should probably have a, maybe the ladies could speak uh, about this from their perspective. But from a man's perspective, you know, a lot has to do with, um, with ordering our thoughts correctly. You know, a number of things that, that I've practiced is, you know, through my life that I was taught uh, earlier on was to, to make it a habit to recognize that when you see any, any woman, whether someone that you know in your community or whether you see someone outside of the community, you, you, should, you should remember, first of all, that this is a person that is made in God's image. As soon as you start th- thinking about God's connection with that person it starts changing the way you look at them and the second thing that that uh, i i learned was to consider that she is the daughter of some father and mother in other words this person now that is presented before you used to sit on somebody's lap and be cuddled and and be held and there was a connection there was a family connection there that changes the way you look at that person 
even more so, I think it's important for us to recognize that this person may be someone for whom, whom the Messiah died. I mean, this is someone that, that, that the Messiah has his eye upon. So be careful what eye you put upon her. If you can go through some of those mental things, it changes a lot about how you're thinking about that person. A lot. It still requires us sometimes, however, to look away, to change our thoughts, to fill our minds with something uh, other than what is immediately presented before us. Right, Job said, I, I will make a covenant with my eyes. A, a, a final thing that I think is important for us, and I know all of these are theological and somewhat uh, cerebral, but I think that's where a lot of us as men, that's where we exist. We do exist in, a lot in our thinking and in our minds. Um, and that is to honestly come to grips with who I am. My desires are not always representative of who I am. And Paul teaches us this, right? He said, uh, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And his answer to that is, I thank the Messiah Yeshua, right? Okay, so when, when there are desires or thoughts that come into my mind or into my heart, and I know that they are wrong, one of the things that I have tried to uh, train myself to do is to say, wait a minute, is that really who you are, Tim? Who are you for? Who really are you? Well, I'm crucified with the Messiah. Okay, well then these thoughts are not from you. Where are they from? They're from your flesh. Okay, and what are we supposed to do with that sinful flesh? Put it to death. Now, if you can think through that and say, that's not me. I know, I know that's not me. I'm not really drawn to that. What I want is God's favor upon me. What I want is God's uh, blessing and happiness upon me. That's when I stop to think about it. That's really what I want. I don't want this this uh, this fruit that that's sweet for a moment and bitter for for the rest of my life. I don't want that. So when you stop to say this is who I truly am, it changes a lot about how we handle those thoughts that come into our minds. You know, I, I'm sure that women also have to battle with the, with the thoughts, with the temptations of the eye. It would be interesting to hear how those temptations are different. I know Paulette and I have talked about uh, some of that throughout our, our married life. And from what I can tell, generally speaking, the things that women struggle with in terms of their thought life are radically different than what men struggle with. Right? It might depend upon background, sure, and the experiences that you've had and the places that you've been and so forth and so on before coming to the Messiah do, do make a big difference. And, of course, in our case, both Paulette and myself, we grew up in very conservative, very uh, guarded uh, homes, in some cases not as guarded as we had wished they would have been after our, we grew up to be adults, but nonetheless, uh, generally speaking, very guarded. And, uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, I, I have uh, I have an interesting story of uh, when there were a group of men who were uh, leaders in a small little uh, group down in Idaho, and we met together with several of uh, the leaders here, and uh, we were going around introducing ourselves, and they were telling their life story about being drug drug addicts and being alcoholics and and having been spent time in in prison and uh, so forth and so on, and how God miraculously saved them and changed their lives, and, and here they are, you know. And then when we went around, it was like, you know, well, I, I grew up in a in a home where, you know, you know I, no, I've never done that, no, no, I've never done that. I, no, I, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was amazing to them, you know, to, to see the stark contrast, and yet there we were, all of us sinners saved by God's grace. We, we really were not any different in that regard. But... Some of us have grown up without the baggage and without the scars that others have, have had to carry into their adult life. And certainly that does make a difference. All right. Well, the thoughts, that's where it all starts. Aaron. Okay, the question is asked. Um, the, the word epithumeo uh, here, epithumia is the noun, which means lust. In this context, is it, can, is it uh, broad enough to include lust for one's wife? It's interesting you should uh, ask that question because the church fathers asked the same question. I think it was Theodosius I, I made the comment that one could, in fact, um, have wrongful thoughts, wrongful sexual thoughts towards um, his wife. Of course, that would be impossible. You cannot commit adultery with your wife. And so in the context here, it says that the one who lusts after a woman 
has committed adultery with her already in his heart. So that in itself rules out your wife, it seems to me. Because by the very definition of adultery, which means to have a sexual relation with someone other than whom you're married to, or with someone married to another person, um, um, you, can't you can't covet something you already own. Now, with, within, the, uh, within the context of, uh, of marriage, can there be inappropriate uh, things done? Yes, there can be. Um, uh, and uh, when, whenever the, the, the marital relations become a selfish thing, you are on the verge of something that can uh, uh, evolve into un- something that's extremely unhealthy and, and not God-honoring. The very thing that holds marriage together is the fact that you have come to the conclusion that your life belongs to the other person. And so uh, when you have come to that conclusion, you are willing to forego your desires and your wants for the sake of, of your spouse. And that should, be, that should be manifest in the physical relationship as, as well as in all aspects of the relationship. I personally think, this is, this is my, own, uh, my own suggestion, I think marriages fail far more because there is not enough passion for each other than that there's too much. Uh, you know, and this we're not giving a course on, on on marriage, but and I think this is generally the fault of of uh, of men not understanding the needs of women. I mean, we, you know, like uh, Dr. Laura, um, you know, she has it right on this one. Men are just simple, very simple creatures, very simple. We don't need a lot, and we have a tendency to uh, have simple needs. And when the needs are met, we're satisfied and we go to sleep. And uh, that that's not the way women are made. <laughs> far more complex and 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 with far more sophisticated needs and and we have uh we have a tendency to think that as long as my needs are being met everything's cool and and not to and not to think past that so i think that i think the scriptures are clear that god has a desire for us a greater desire for us than we can imagine and he wants us to have a desire for him greater than than we should i mean than we do now okay well, if the marriage relationship is to reflect that relationship, then there's no way in the world that a husband could desire his wife too much. <laughs> you know, within the context of self-giving love, there's no way that a husband could desire his wife too much, nor for a wife to desire her husband too much. It is that desire that, is, that bespeaks our anticipation of the coming of the Messiah and our hope for him. So, that's what I would say. So, guys, get with it. Okay. Uh, Right, and I've wondered. Uh, the, the point is being made about Second Corinthians uh, ten five, about bringing every thought captive uh, to to the Messiah. I've wondered exactly if that means my own thoughts or if that means somebody else's thoughts. But it's it's maybe both, both and. Okay, um, bringing all those to uh, to the foot of Yeshua and making sure that that uh, he approves of them. Right. All right. Uh, 29 and 30. If your right hand, eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. These verses demonstrate with hyperbolic ferocity the seriousness of Yeshua's call to holiness. Matthew 18.9 says essentially the same thing. He speaks in prophetic tones that shock our senses, and that is his intention. Obviously, he is not teaching self-mutilation. Destroying a part of the body does not save one from hell. He is rather teaching us that purity of heart is to be considered of greater importance than even physical life. If one is intent upon saving one's flesh from injury and disease, and are we not all... I mean, what happens, you know, uh, uh, what, what happens when you cut your finger? You're working and you and you pull a chunk of skin out of your finger. What do you do? Just, eh, big deal, and you just go on? Oh, no, 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 no. You stop. You know, that, that finger goes up against something. You know, you're looking at it again. You're washing it off. You're putting something on it. You're, you're favoring it now. You're taking care of it. Why? Well, because no man ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes and cherishes it, right? Okay. Well, if that's the case, if that's how we treat our physical self, Yeshua says you should even more so take care of your spiritual self, the inward heart. Origen wrote, the believer amputates the passions of the soul without touching the body. So, 
you know, there have been people down through the ages, uh, various sects and so forth, who took this uh, woodenly and literally and maimed themselves in hopes that it would uh, make them more fit for the kingdom of God. That is not what Yeshua is saying. He's saying that we should give a higher priority even to our, the holiness, the pursuit of holiness than we do for the care of our own body. Not that we should neglect either. The right eye may have been understood as having higher importance than the left, or else it is designated to suggest a glance or perception rather than a close, intimate gaze with both eyes. Sometimes in the Hebrew, to gaze means to use both eyes. The eye is listed first since the previous verse emphasizes verses emphasize that lust is the function of the eyes. In the Mark parallel, we have hand, foot, and eye in that order. If your hand uh, offends you, cut it off. If your foot, uh, cut it off. The eye, one wonders if he's not talking about uh, having in mind the consecration of the priest where he put blood on the earlobe and on the thumb and on the foot. I mean, the idea at least is there of walking holy and sanctified set apart to God. With the idea of the lust of the eye, Yeshua adds the actions of the right hand. In Semitic origin, uh, idiom, the right hand is the hand of strength and authority. Some have suggested that the right hand continues the sense of sexual sins, but this is doubtful, I think. Rather, the point is that one's physical strength must be coupled with one's spiritual strength. Once again, the point is that one's spiritual ability to withstand temptation and sin is even more important than one's physical strength. For if one has only wholeness of body, but is weak spiritually, the whole body will perish. But spiritual purity, the sanctification that proceeds from genuine faith, preserves both body and soul. It seems quite possible that Paul is aware of this teaching of Yeshua. At least his words sound the same. In Colossians 3, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. He even says to mortify or put to death the flesh or the deeds of the flesh. Which sounds a lot like, if it offends you, cut it off. Yeah. For Yeshua, hell, again we have Gehenna, is a reality, the place of God's final judgment against sinners. This is another doctrine in our day that's being set aside, even by evangelicals. We are so sophisticated in our modern 21st century that no modern man could ever envision a God who would uh, maliciously punish people for eternity. Well, I'm not saying that that's only a modern problem. It's been a problem throughout the theology of the Christian church. Uh, there have always been those who have thought that the doctrine of hell is incongruous to the goodness of God. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I have a, a quick answer to that, other than the fact that God is bigger than we can figure out. And he is both just and he is both loving in an infinite and eternal way. And so what, what appears to me is that Yeshua, just without uh, thought, uh, without second thought almost, uh, gives credence to this fact, that hell is the, it will be the place of the unrighteous. What he's teaching us is that kingdom righteousness, that which surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, involves the divinely supplied gift of spiritual strength, the ability to pursue righteousness and shun the sinful desires of the flesh in the world. It doesn't mean that we do it perfectly, but it means that we see progress. We see progress. Our intention is to do it perfectly, and we see progress in that direction. It isn't that we don't fall and fail. Sometimes we even feel like maybe we took a few steps backwards especially in those sins which so easily trip us up, as the writer to the Hebrews say. But we see some progress. As my father used to tell me, it gets longer and longer between the times that you sin. I mean, he explained it to that, that to me as a little boy. Because I, you know, I think he actually said longer and longer between the times you get spankings or something like that. Um, you know, that's showing some progress. You've made some progress here because it's not just, you know, three times you got spankings today. Okay. Tomorrow you get two. The next one, okay, you're doing better. Now you go a whole day without getting a spanking. That means there's some progress being made, something that's, that's uh, you're making some changes, some inward changes, which are important. Once again, Yeshua is not teaching you works righteousness here. He is not saying that by living morally one secures for himself a favored position before the Almighty. What he is saying is that those who are his true disciples, those who have been born again, who have been born of water and spirit, will strive to overcome the sinful nature and will ultimately be, be victorious in this struggle. Now, there's a sense then in which we can say those who are righteous are saved. And there is equally a sense that we can say those who are saved are righteous. The idea that someone can truly be born from above 
and live the life of an unbeliever is simply not found in the Scriptures. It is not there. And the easy believism of our day has produced a lot of people who believe that somehow a, a fire escape clause has been signed for them, some life insurance policy has been given to them, and that when the time comes, they'll simply produce it, and it will be effective. But that is not the case at all. Salvation is not some, some aspect that merely is legal or forensic. Salvation is a change of heart and life so that righteousness becomes the fruit. But his call to holiness is a radical one. For his followers, holiness is priority one. And all other things, even those that are good, if they stand in the way of sanctification, must be removed. Your hand is a good thing. Your eye is a good thing. <laughs> but if it stands in the way of sanctification, you need to do something about it. This demonstrates the place where the Shema is worked out in everyday living. To love the Lord with all one's heart, soul, and might means to be wholly set apart to him. All right, we go to the next one. And boy, is this a tough one. So we'll put off uh, further discussion about it till uh, we get come to chapter 19, about three years from now. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. Verses 31 and 32, it was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The previous discussion of sexual sins, which begin in the heart when lustful thoughts are entertained and allowed to grow into sinful desire, forms the obvious background for this teaching on divorce. Divorce, which causes adultery, is the end result of sin fostered first in the heart. Wherever divorce occurs, it's because there's been sin. Divorce is not God's purpose for marriage. He's, he makes it very clear. Divorce does not just happen. It is the result of a process that begins with the sins of selfishness, lust, hatred, and bitterness. In 19.1-12 of, of uh, Matthew, and there are some parallels, the subject of divorce and remarriage is more fully developed by our master, who is confronted with the issue by some Pharisees who want to test his halakha on divorce. I, I think they want to know which camp he's in. Is he Shemai or is he Hillel? There, as here, the Torah provision for divorce, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, is brought forward as the basis for formulating the current halakha. In chapter 19, 1-12, however, Yeshua appeals to Genesis 2:24 as the more fun foundational text regulating the marriage covenant. And he views Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 as a necessary concession because of the sinful heart of men. So, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 says, uh, if you're not familiar with it, that if a man... Uh, has married a woman and she uh, no longer ha has favor in his eyes because he has seen in her some indecent thing. He is to give her a bill of divorcement in her hand and send her out. Then if she goes and marries another man and uh, he likewise divorces her, she is not free to come back and marry her first husband. I mean, that's, a, that, that, that's the gist of the Deuteronomy passage. Yeshua is suggest not suggesting, he's teaching that there is valid and there is invalid divorce. Now, I know that this is a very controversial text, this and the parallel text in the Synoptics as well as the Matthew 19 text. Very, very controversial. People have really, uh, they get very upset at various views here. There, there are those who say Yeshua never, ever allowed any divorce whatsoever. I, I just don't see how anybody can read these verses and say that because he does have an exception clause. But I've studied through it uh, enough to know what the other side is saying, um, even though I can't agree with it. All right. So my point is that here, Genesis 2.24 is not brought up, but in chapter 19 it is. And so we know that Genesis 2.24, which is what? A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall be one. This is the foundational text as far as Yeshua is concerned. 
Deuteronomy 24 is a concession because of the sinful nature of men. It is not God's purpose. Genesis 2.24 is God's purpose. The first thing we can do is compare uh, what Matthew has with Deuteronomy 24.1. In the NASB, and I've done it here in our page, it's put in a font that tells you it's a quote from, from the Tanakh. Well, in fact, it is not a quote. If, you, or if you're able to read the, the Greek, you'll see that there are only really two words in the Matthew text that even parallel the Septuagint of the Deuteronomy text. So, on page 206, first it is apparent that the quote is actually not a quote at all, but a legal prescription based upon Deuteronomy 24.1. Matthew uses two key terms from the Septuagint translation. Both use the uh, Greek word apostasion, which means a bill of divorcement. And both use the, the verb didomi, which means to give, when speaking of delivering the bill of divorcement to the wife. Except for these two terms, it is clear that Yeshua is simply stating a halakhic axiom based upon Deuteronomy 24 and not quoting the text directly. This fact informs the text as a whole, for in simply stating the halakhic rule, that is, that a valid divorce occurs only when a proper get, that's the Hebrew word that was used in the first century for a bill of di divorcement, only when a proper get is written and actually delivered to the woman, Yeshua is showing how the emphasis in his day was on proper paperwork without due attention to the heart of the matter, whether a divorce was valid in the first place or not. Indeed, the overall conclusion of these verses is that proper paperwork for an invalid divorce is nothing less than a form of publicly sanctioned adultery. You understand what I'm saying there? That is exactly what is true in our the courts issue a piece of paper saying that you were legally divorced and everyone goes out saying, okay, I'm fine then. And people remarry under those auspices. And when they do, if it's not a valid divorce, God considers adultery. So that piece of paper that makes you feel good about your divorce is nothing more than making you feel good about possibly committing adultery if you remarry or causing your wife to commit adultery, putting her in a place where she feels the necessity to remarry. All right. Once again, the antithesis brought by Yeshua is his contrast between a well-accepted practice or belief and what the Torah actually teaches by stressing one's heart submission to God. The rabbinic halakha regarding divorce is contained in the Mishnah tractate Gitin, which literally means bills of divorcement. The entire tractate is taken up with the proper way to write and deliver a bill of divorcement. If you haven't read it, it's not that long. I read through it today. And it's, it starts out by saying, if a man delivers a bill of divorcement from overseas, is it valid? That's how it starts out. It's all about how you write one, how you deliver it, if you have to put it in her hand, if you can send it by an agent, if you are sending it and all of a sudden you decide, I don't want to do this, can you retract it? What happens if you don't write it exactly correctly? What if you put in the, the bill of divorcement? By the way, the, the, the simple line that makes a bill of divorcement, according to the Mishnah, that makes it valid if, if it has this line, Behold, you, speaking to the wife, are free to marry any man. In other words, your being exclusively my wife has now been severed and you are free to marry any man. The, the Mishnah tractate goes into all kinds. What happens if somebody says, you're free to marry any man except for A, B, and C? Is it a valid? No, it's not valid. The whole tractate, everything that the Mishnah says about divorce in this particular tractate is all about paperwork making the legal paperwork valid. And I think the way Yeshua enters you know, this, this point is that he quotes this legal dictum. You have to give this bill of divorcement. That's what, he, that's what they were saying. You give a bill of divorcement, it's a, legal, it's a legal divorce. And Yeshua is saying, wait a minute. We need to step back and find out if there is such a thing as a valid divorce and if so, on what grounds. This is what one would expect in light of the fact that the mission is essentially a body of casuistic law and not a treatise on ethics or theological beliefs. But in spite of this, the emphasis of the Mishnah makes Yeshua's point that much stronger. When the issue of divorce rose among the Jewish communities of his day, recourse to the legal rulings of the sages as to how one goes about satisfying the legal requirements was the primary focus. Yeshua intends to take the matter back to a more fundamental question, namely, whether divorce was valid in the first place. Clearly the Torah, that is Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, speaks to the issue of divorce and gives legal precedence for enacting a divorce. But the overall emphasis of the Deuteronomy text focuses on the issue of a woman remarrying her first husband after having been divorced, marrying another man, and then divorced from him. 
While the scenario presented in the Torah text presupposes divorce, its point is to limit the shuffling of women back and forth between different men. Such a practice undermines the core element of marital sanctity and is therefore prohibited. Therefore, though the Deuteronomy passage presupposes divorce, it hardly sanctions it as God's intended program. Yet Deuteronomy 24.1 does indicate that a recognized divorce existed in ancient Israel and that the Torah itself, while not encouraging divorce, does make a provision for it. The major issue of interpretation for Deuteronomy 24.1, however, is what Moses means by the words, some indecency. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes, this is Deuteronomy 24.1, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, then it goes on to say the rest of the scenario. The Hebrew, is, the Hebrew for some indecency is ervat davar, literally an indecent matter. Thus, the first thing to recognize in this text is that it limits divorce to the case where an indecent matter is discovered in the wife. But then, what does that mean? What is an indecent matter? Well, that's where we have an awful lot of discussion, both ancient and modern. And no clear consensus has been reached, by the way, as far as I can tell. But to, to cut to the end of the chase here, uh, I think when Yeshua says, except for a matter of unchastity, he is giving his, uh, he's saying the same thing Moses is saying, ervat devar. His exception clause is the same as what Moses is talking about, an, an, an indecent matter. If the issue were one of sexual infidelity through an act of adultery, then the death penalty would be enacted, right? So Deuteronomy 24 must not be talking about that. It already Leviticus has already given us what happens when there's clear adultery. If the husband suspected his wife of adultery, but there was insufficient evidence to prove it, he would be required either to forego any further action in the matter or require his wife to undergo the test of the bitter water, where he was jealous for his wife. And then the bitter water ordeal would would decide. We should presume then that ervat devar, an indecent matter, describes something other than adultery or suspected adultery. The Hebrew word erva often means naked. It is used regularly in describing sexual relations in Leviticus 18 when it says, for this is the nakedness of your uncle or this is the nakedness of your father, meaning the relations that you would have with his wife. And sometimes is used euphemistically for the genitals. It is also used metaphorically of unguarded regions of the land, right? And if you wanted to be very, very, very uh, graphic in your translation, you would say they're trying to spy out the private parts of the land because that's exactly what the text says. But the word also came to mean something indecent or inappropriate, as in the requirements that excrement not be in the camp, for such would be, same word, indecent. The rabbis were divided on how to interpret the indecent matter of Deuteronomy 24.1. The most famous and well-known debate existed again between Hillel and Shammai. And we find it succinctly given in Gittin 9.10. By the way, if you want the full description of this, you look at Sifrei, paragraph 269, Sifrei of Deuteronomy. The house of Shammai say, A man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in, in unchastity, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. And the house of Alel say, even if she spoiled his dish, since it said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. Rabbi Akiva says, even if he found someone else prettier than she, since it is said, and it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. Now what's really going on here? If you, I, should have, I guess I should have put the Hebrew in, in here so you could have seen it. But the two interpretations, as well as Akiva's extended interpretation, all depend upon the Hebrew, Ervat Devar. Some of the difficulty results from the fact that this is not normally how we would expect the Hebrew to be written. Ervat Devar, those of you that have taken some Hebrew, Ervat is in the, what some of us know as the word pair form, right? Or what the grammarians would call the uh, construct form. As a construct of matter, thus literally an indecency of a matter, where we would rather expect Devar Erva, a matter of indecency. In other words, erva should modify devar, not not the other way around. This led the sages to question why the Hebrew was written in such a peculiar fashion. Hillel reasoned that the word devar, the word that we translate matter, seemed to be superfluous. The phrase could just as well have been written without it. He finds in her an indecency. He therefore reasoned that the additional word devar was to be interpreted as adding something additional to the meaning of ervat. 
since Servat expressed indecency the addition of devoir meant any other matter. So there, for Hillel, there were two reasons you could divorce your wife. For a matter of indecency and for anything else. So, he says, he takes the most mundane, even if she, you know, burnt your toast. She spoiled the dish. It's enough. Anything. Anything you want. Two separate things. Uh, the question is, would the word pair form indicate two separate things? Here is the thinking of the rabbis exegetically. No word in the Torah is superfluous. Or the question that they ask when you're reading is, should this word of the Torah be burned? In other words, would the Torah mean exactly the same thing if that word weren't there? What's the obvious answer? No. Every word has a purpose. Well, if there's no reason to have the word devar there, because indecency would have been enough, then what is the meaning of adding the second word? There must be an additional reason. That would be their thinking. Now, as you will see, Shammai said no. Shammai considered the two words to express a single idea, that is, unchastity or indecency, and limited valid divorce to the case where a wife had acted inappropriately with another man, albeit short of actual adultery. For instance, the rabbis would say, if, your wife, if, you, if you saw your wife flirting with another man, and you came to her and said, don't do that anymore, I don't want you talking with him anymore, and you found her again and again and again with this same man in flirtatious kinds of scenarios. That's what Shammai would say is an indecent matter. Or if your wife was, was uh, constantly dressing in a provocative fashion and you told her, please don't go out wearing that. And she constantly wore immodest clothing. For Shammai, that would be an indecent matter, a matter of indecency. Akiva was a Hillelite and took the import of Deuteronomy 24.1 even further. Since the verse includes she finds no favor in his eyes, and since Hillel had already said for any matter, he understood this to be a third category beside the two noted by Hillel, namely, that a man could divorce his wife because he found someone else more pleasing. Generally, the rulings of Hillel, as I said, were followed by the majority, and we may presume that his no-fault divorce policies were considered normative for the majority of the Jewish communities. The fact that the debate is between Hillel and Shammai, both early sages, would warrant us presuming that such liberal views of divorce were extant in the time of Yeshua. This sets the background for Yeshua's antithesis. In a time when divorce was granted for any reason, Yeshua calls for a reassessment of the sanctity of marriage itself. It seems very possible, in light of the rabbinic debate just mentioned, that Yeshua's exception clause, except for the reason of unchastity, is his understanding of Ervat Devar in Deuteronomy 24.1. And if so, he clearly aligns himself with the minority ruling, that is, of Shammai. So he would teach that the only valid grounds for divorce is that of some form of sexual sin. The, word, the Greek word translated unchastity is porneia, which has a wide range of meanings, but is always tied to some form of sexual deviancy. It regularly translates zanut, in the Tanakh, a word derived from the verb zana, to commit fornication. And it regularly is used of prostitution. The Hebrew word for harlot is zona, that is, one who practices zana, one who practices fornication. Thus, is used in this context, especially as Yeshua's equivalent for irvat devar, the, un, the matter of unchastity, in Deuteronomy 24.1, would indicate that it has some sexual overtones. I would, I would clearly believe that this word, except for porneia, relates to inappropriate relationships with someone of the opposite, well, with someone outside of the marriage, of a sexual nature. Now that leaves it pretty wide open, doesn't it? <laughs> In the past, I would have said it's restricted to the physical act, the physical act itself. But I think there's no reason why he wouldn't have used mokeia. Now, makia is the Greek word for adultery. Porneia is the Greek word for fornication, a broader term. And there are times, and I, I didn't go into this at length, and maybe we'll do this uh, when we chap, uh, do chapter 19, um, or maybe I should write an excursus uh, with them all here right now at this point uh, for next week or whatever. But um, if you study moikeia and porneia, the two Greek words, the moikeia meaning adultery and porneia meaning fornication, you'll discover that oftentimes they are used in parallel and oftentimes are almost synonymous, especially in the Septuagint. Yet it would seem to me that he would have, he's talking about adultery. And uh, if he has said, except for adultery, well, that, that's, you know, uh, it seems that, his, that he is taking a slightly broader view of ervat devar, because adultery would have been dealt with with regard to a capital punishment. And that's, that's, one of the, that's one of the sticking issues. 
for those who say, well, it must, it must be, the exception is only for adultery. Well, what about, you know, uh, we can do all kinds of scenarios. But, uh, and after you've, you know, if you've been in leadership for any number of years, you've heard a lot of scenarios. Well, you know, what about, what about a husband who is, uh, for want of a better term, addicted to pornography? I mean, he simply is caught time and time and time again on the internet, with the magazines, in the porn shops, etc., etc. And he refuses to change his ways and he refuses to repent of it. Does a godly wife have the right to divorce him? Well, personally, I think porneo would include that. Yeah. Um, I don't, let me repeat the question from, from a, a female side of things, the romance novels that describe um, in, in quite detail intimate situations and those kinds of things. Would that be on the same par as, as visual pornography? I think so. You know, the, 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 the question is, uh, uh, is, it of, is it of such a nature that it is disrupting the, the marriage and there seems to be no willingness to repent of it? Uh, the same thing, of course, would be true in terms of what is common, becoming more common in our day. Uh, uh, you know, homosexual and, and lesbian kinds of approaches. So I think we cannot limit this to, um, uh, you know, physical male-female relations. I'm trying to be careful with my words. Uh, but um, uh, it, it is broader than that. I think pornea allows it to be broader than that. Right. The the question is, could could fi- could this passage be talking about the period of betrothal? In which case, when a woman uh, or a man is unfaithful, the betrothal is broken through through a, a, a valid divorce. Um, the, the problem with it is that it says marries another, and the word for marry here is not the word that would ever be used for betrothal. It has the word. It has the meaning of consummated marriage. Right. But in 1909, if you look at, if you, and I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that we're talking, that Yeshua is talking about the same thing in, uh, in Matthew 19.9 as he's talking about here. I don't think, I, th- I think that the texts are parallel enough. And he says in 19.9, um, let me get it here quickly. He says in 19.9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, the word marries another there is the word in the Greek which means a consummated marriage. It is the word that means having sexual relations. So, uh, the idea that, that this verse, that, that Yeshua's view of, of divorce here is limited to that period of betrothal, I don't think works. And it certainly doesn't work because that's not what Deuteronomy 24 is talking about. And he is, in both cases, he's brought Deuteronomy 24 up as the, as the point of departure for his discussion. It makes no sense to discuss Deuteronomy 24.1 if your if your conclusion is with regard to betrothal period, because it's clear it isn't. He marries her, he brings her into his house, which is not betrothal, and uh, and he sends her out of his house. So uh, here 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 he's talking about a consummated marriage. But then the argument could be raised that bringing her into the house. Just when you find out that that she wasn't what she said she was at the beginning. Well, in that that case, okay. The the point is, what about the scenario where you bring your your new wife into your home, then you find out that she is not a virgin? Well, what the penalty is for that is she's to be taken to the door of her dad and stoned because she has played the harlot in Israel. Unless she's a priest's daughter, then she's she's burned, right? If she's a priest's daughter, so the penalty there is 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 pretty clear. No, Deuteronomy 24 apparently is talking about uh, a divorce in, uh, in a normal consummated marriage. Okay. Instone Brewer has also pointed to another fact that suggests Yeshua's, uh, except his phrase, except for Pornea, was his understanding of Ervat Devar, the, un, the matter of unchastity in Deuteronomy 24.1. In the Mishnah, quoted above, the Hebrew text has an interesting clue. As I noted earlier, the Hebrew phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1 is awkward, and one would expect davar to come first, followed by ervah, yielding an indecent matter. Shammai, understanding the phrase to mean precisely this, changes the order of the words in the Mishnah when, he, when it's quoted. The school of Shammai says, a man should not divorce his wife except he found in her a matter of indecency. Here we don't have ervat davar, he wrote davar ervah. He changed the order of the words because that makes more sense in the way he understands the meaning. 
As it is said, for he finds in her in a decent manner. Now he quotes the text the way it is in the Hebrew text, Ervat Devar. Significantly, the order of the words in our Matthew text follows Shemai. It says, it says, Parektos Logu Porneos. And Logu would be word, and Porneos, of course, would be an, an indecency, right? So it's a word, a matter of indecency in that order, just the same way Shemai had it. It sounds very clearly that Yeshua had studied Shemai. And he's, he's here saying, Shemai has it right. There's one uh, exception that in which divorce is valid. And it is a, a, the exception of where a spouse has sinned sexually in some way uh, within the marriage. The primary question, however, still remains. What does porneia encompass? The reason that this is an important question is that for Yeshua, it is porneia that offers the grounds for a valid divorce and thus the right to remarry without committing adultery. Some have interpreted porneia in a very narrow sense, making it mean adultery. I've already talked about why I don't think that could be the case, because that would uh, have drawn the uh, death penalty. While others understand it to mean incest in the sense of marriage within the forbidden degrees of Leviticus 18. Remember, Leviticus 18 says you can marry this. You can't marry your sister. You can't marry your uh, your brother. You can't marry uh, your your uh, stepmother. You can't marry your mother. You know, it has all of these different uh, degrees of relative. Uh, relatives which stand outside the circle of valid marriage. Well, the question that some would say is, what about the Gentiles who were coming into the synagogue who did not follow these laws? If they were married in a way that was too close to the bloodline, would they have been required to divorce? And some have suggested, suggested yes, and that that's what Yeshua is talking about here, that, that if there is a marriage which has come about which is invalid, that it should be divorced, that there should be a divorce. And it, this is what he calls porneia. Well, um, as I said, I don't think that uh, the adultery uh, definition works, nor does porneia suggest marriages within the forbidden degrees, since such marriages were ruled invalid from the beginning and did not require divorce, but rather were annulled. The best we can say is that porneia involves some sin of sexual nature, of a sexual nature, which falls short of witnessed adultery, but has nonetheless severed the marital bond between the husband and the wife. Now, what does the phrase mean, makes her commit adultery? A man who divorces his wife for invalid reasons causes her to commit adultery. How so? This must be understood against the backdrop of the ancient Near East in which a woman sent forth from her husband's house had little recourse but to remarry in order to sustain her own life. We might even say that uh, some sociologists say that the the prevalence of, of, of prostitution in ancient Israel was the result of the many, many divorces that were allowed. Women were kicked out of their house and they had, how were they going to sustain themselves? From Yeshua's point of view, since in the case of an invalid divorce, she was still considered to be the man's wife, marrying another man constituted adultery. But the culpability of such a thing is laid at the feet of the husband who wrongfully divorced her. What of a woman who has committed pornea and is therefore given a valid divorce by her husband? Is she free to remarry? Yeshua actually does not approach this question, though Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 would indicate that such did occur in, in ancient Israel, and apparently without being considered as an act of adultery. Legally, a woman given a valid divorce is free to remarry, for this was the purpose of divorce in the first place. The Mishnah gives the shortest valid wording of the get, Lo, you are permitted to any man. The idea then, in other words, you didn't have to be overly literate to write a bill of divorcement. Right? It was a very short sentence. The idea then that Yeshua permitted divorce but prohibited remarriage is invalid. That was a common, that, that was a common uh, uh, interpretation amongst uh, some Christian churches and in some cases still is. I think Bill Gothard, I think, takes that view. I'm not sure. In fact, this is Yeshua's point. An invalid divorce gives no right to remarry in God's eyes. A valid divorce does. However, in the case of the unfaithful wife who is given a valid divorce, her status as one who has engaged in pornea is made clear, right? I mean, the fact that the, that the divorce is considered valid means that she really did commit pornea. And one would have to wonder what kind of man would be willing to marry her under these circumstances. I don't, I'm not sure a righteous man would want to marry someone who had been divorced because she had proven to be sexually deviant. And the, phrase, the last phrase, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This final clause of our text must be read in light of the context in which Yeshua is apparently speaking to, to the no-fault divorces that abounded in his day. 
Whereas the legal authorities consider divorce valid as long as the paperwork was properly filed, Yeshua rather returns to the words of the Torah in order to bring its divine message to bear upon the events of his day. No fault divorce was, as far as Yeshua was concerned, no divorce at all. Women who were dismissed from their husband's home by such invalid bills of dismissal were in God's eyes still rightfully married. As such, they were not free to marry another man, even though the get they held in their hands said they were. Therefore, any man who married such a woman was taking to himself the wife of another man, and this constituted adultery. Well, I don't expect that that answers the questions. Then this is a very difficult text, but that gives you at least that gives us at least something to consider to talk about. Uh, questions or comments? I know we went a little over, so yes. Okay, the question is: uh, everything that we've said this far, thus far, is uh, predicated upon a man suing or giving his wife a bill of divorcement. In other words, divorce seems to be only the right of men. We know that in the rabbinic literature there was the right of women to divorce. And we also know that in Mark, if we, if we look at all of these texts, Mark gives us the other side of it, that a woman did have the right to, uh, to, to divorce. And in fact, the ketubah that is, that is uh, written up in a Jewish uh, betrothal uh, indicates that if, the, in certain cases, if the man fails to keep his part of the contract, that she can uh, sue for divorce and she gets to keep the dowry. So, it, it, in one way, and I, I'm, this gets extremely involved, but in one way you would ask yourself, well, why would anybody ever go to Shammai for a ruling as over against Hillel? You know if you go to Hillel, you're going to get a divorce. He's going to say, uh, you know, write the paper, okay, yep, valid, boom. What's the problem? The problem is, is that if you divorce your wife for anything according to the traditional ketubah, if you divorce your wife for anything other than the fact that she, that she failed as a wife according to the ketubah, she keeps the dowry. Only if she has failed, if she has transgressed in some way, does the husband get that money back. So why would you go to Shammai? Well, because Shammai is only going to allow a divorce if she's failed. And so if you go and you prove to Shammai that your divorce is valid, that means you get your dowry back. Instant Brewer says that the surrounding cultures didn't let the women divorce. Yeah, it was, it was not prevalent, but uh, it's, it's, it, legally it's in the books. If, how it happened, how often it happened, who knows. The surrounding cultures of Israel didn't at all. The surrounding cultures of Israel didn't even um, uh, have a bill of divorcement. Uh, it's just something unique to Israel. The, the thing that the thing that uh, that is so prevalent in our day is the fact that you have women who are battered. I mean, the number of battered women is is astounding in our culture, in our society, and it, it's on the rise from everything that I've read. Um, what, would a woman have the right to divorce a husband who's uh, at a right to divorce, and therefore a right to remarry, to divorce from a husband who constantly beats her up? I mean, these are the sticky, hard questions. The rabbis would say absolutely. Even Shammai, I think, would have said it. Uh, he would have considered that to be pornea. <laughs> he would have considered that to be, uh, you know, uh, of, of a sexual nature. Because you're to care for your wife. You're to care for her body. And to mistreat her is, is, uh, is valid cause for divorce. But uh, there's no checklist. You know, it's a, it's a very difficult, uh, very difficult subject. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew.